We are wrapping up the Misunderstood series this morning. This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 28, passage that will be familiar to many of you, but if you've got a Bible, you may want to get over to Romans 8, 28, because we're also going to talk through some of the context of that passage this morning. Uh, as I was thinking about this passage this week, I was reminded of a song from the 1990s by the country artist Garth Brooks. Uh, some of you will remember his song called Unanswered Prayers that was popular, I don't know, sometime in the, in the 90s, and you know, it was on this No Fences album. Kind of the tagline of the chorus is, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Now, uh, we're going to do something for a few minutes this morning that you've probably never done, which is we are going to theologically evaluate a Garth Brooks song. So uh, bear with me for just a minute. I want to read you some of the lyrics, and then we're going to talk about what they mean uh, after I read them. So it begins like this. Just the other night at a hometown football game, my wife and I ran into my old high school flame, and as I introduced them, the past came back to me. And I couldn't help but think of the way things used to be. She was the one that I'd wanted for all times. And each night I'd spend praying that God would make her mine. And if he'd only grant me this wish I wished back then, I'd never ask for anything again. And then the chorus says, Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. That's a lot. That's like a triple negative right there. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And then the second chorus is where the real theology comes in. So pay attention. She wasn't quite the angel that I remembered in my dreams, and I could tell that time had changed me in her eyes too, it seemed. We tried to talk about the old days. There wasn't much we could recall. I guess the Lord knows what he's doing after all. And as she walked away and I looked at my wife, then and there I thanked the good Lord for the gifts in my life. And then he goes back into the chorus, I thank God for unanswered prayers. So, uh, you know, very, very popular song. But what, what is he getting at? Well, here's, here's the basic storyline. There was a girl that he thought he loved, that he, he wanted. He thought he wanted to marry her. But he didn't get to. We don't know why. It doesn't tell us why. Uh, and he runs into her years later and he realizes, man, I'm glad that I lost that girl. Why? Because God gave me a better girl, right? So, so he looks back on his past and he says, man, you know, that girl that I thought was, was everything I wanted, she's not as good looking as I thought she was, frankly, in hindsight. She's kind of boring, right? We don't have a whole lot to talk about. But I'm really, really glad that, that what God did is he, he evened the scales of the universe, right? He balanced it out. He took that loss and he gave me something better, right? That's what he's saying. Now, the reason I, I bring that up is because that perspective on how God operates is so common, not just in the culture at large, but also, I think, in the church, and the perspective runs something like this, that if I experience loss, if something bad happens in my life, I need to look for God to do something to balance it out. He may balance it out in a week, he may balance it out in a month, a year, 10 years, whatever, but at some point, I will be able to look back on my life, hopefully, probably, preferably in this life, 
and see how God balanced things out, right? So uh, you may not have been familiar with Garth Brooks, but you might be more familiar perhaps with The Sound of Music, right? The musical, and you may remember there's a scene in The Sound of Music toward the beginning where Maria, played by Julie Andrews, she gets kicked out of a convent, right? She's not a good fit for the convent, and so they send her away to go work for the Von Trapp family and take care of the kids. And as she's leaving the convent, here's what she says. She says, when God closes a door, sometimes somewhere he opens a window, right? Really, really common expression. God closes a door, he opens a window. And I I can even remember a song, a Christian song, when I was a kid that was called something like that. When God shuts a door, he opens a window, right? And and uh, the idea is, if God closes one avenue in your life, Look for another avenue that might be uh, just as good or different, but will still allow you to get where you wanted to be. Now, I always thought it was kind of an odd metaphor, to be honest, because, because when you think about it, like imagine that you came home from work or you came home from running errands and you go to walk in the house and the door is locked, right? And from the other side, you hear your spouse say, I have closed that door, but I opened a little window. You can climb through the window. You would say, well, that's not nice, right? That's not a nice thing to do to somebody, to go around and you close all the doors and you're like, climb in that little window, right? And it made me think, is that how God operates? That God, you know, right as we're trying to get in the door, God goes, nope, 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 go to the little window, right? But in a broader sense, I think the danger is this, that we begin to believe every time something goes wrong, we need to look for a corresponding right, that God will fix everything here and now in this life in a way that we can see so that like Garth Brooks, we look back and we go, yeah, it was a good thing that I lost that girl or that job or that dream because God gave me a better one. And I think that that mindset can infect the way that we think about our passage this morning. Romans 8.28, a passage that you are probably familiar with. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, right? So we see that, and maybe we even stop reading after that word good, right? We know God causes all things to work together for good. So in the midst of heartache, in the midst of tragedy, we say, look, God's going to make it all okay. It's all going to work out. Everything's good. It's going to be all right. Right? But what we miss is the broader context of the passage and the way that, first of all, the audience of the passage, the recipients of this promise are narrowed to a particular group. And the time horizon of the passage is expanded to eternity. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And here's what I want to say. The interpretation of the passage that says, hey, if something goes wrong, you might be able to look back and see where something else goes right. It's not completely incorrect, Right? Because I think all of us in our lives have had those experiences where we say, look, I had a loss. I lost that job. But later, by the Lord's provision, I got a better one. Or whatever it may be. So it's not that that perspective is totally incorrect. It's that it's just incomplete. Right, and so, so this may be uh, the only of the four passages that we've looked at where I'm not going to say that the typical interpretation is 100% in error because sometimes in this life we do see God work in ways we didn't expect where we experienced a loss, but without that loss we could not have experienced a later gain. We see that sometimes, but not always. 
and not in a way we can anticipate or expect, right? So, so the traditional understanding of this passage is incomplete. Let me give a couple of quotes that represent the typical interpretation of Romans 8.28. How is it often interpreted? A couple of quotes. First one is this. This is from uh, Joel Osteen. He says this, right now, God is working behind the scenes in your life. No matter what you may be facing, no matter what trial you may be going through, God has a plan to turn things around in your favor. Right now, he is working out a plan for your good. Okay, so far, so good there. But let's keep reading. Right now, he is orchestrating the right people to come across your path. He is orchestrating the right opportunities to open up to you. Focus on his goodness in your life, knowing that he rewards the people who seek after him. You'll experience his peace and joy and embrace the victory he has prepared for you. Now, I share that not to pick on Joel Osteen, but to to make a point. Here's really what he's getting at, right? You've experienced something tragic or hard or heartbreaking in your life. You need to look. God's going to bring you a person or an opportunity or another window that you can go through where God will balance the scales in your favor now or soon. Okay, and it's not, again, that it's 100% incorrect. It's just incomplete. Let me give you another quote. In June, a fire broke out. This is from a a newspaper in Missouri. A fire broke out at New Covenant Academy's New Liberty Campus. After months of renovations, the campus will open to students Tuesday morning. The fire was contained, and Romans 8.28 says all things work together for good, Linda Beck's teacher said. So I believe that it all worked together in his timing. You see what she's saying? Part of the building burned down, but not all the building, right? So God worked it out. We still got to keep some of the building, and we got a newer building. So Romans 8.28, everything worked out okay here and now, right? And here's the question we're going to look at this morning. Is that what Romans 8.28 promises? Okay, and the reason I think we need to talk about this this morning is because the temptation for us, I think, often in the midst of pain and heartache is to say, okay, how is God going to balance the scales? How's he going to fix this? He's got to fix this today, tomorrow, 10 years, whenever I'm going to be able to look back in this life and say, okay, I understand, I got it, right? I think often even when other people are in pain, we throw out Romans 8.28 as a sort of balm to paste over the wound. It's okay. God's going to work it out. Just keep your chin up and wait for tomorrow, right? Tomorrow, like little orphan Annie. You just wait for tomorrow, and it's going to get better tomorrow, right? How is the passage often interpreted? Let me give you uh, my summary of it. If something bad happens to you, expect God to do something good in the near future in order to balance the scales, Right, and here's why I think it's a, it's a dangerous understanding if we take this on its own. Because when God doesn't balance the scales in our lives, we're tempted to become bitter. We're tempted to lose heart. We're tempted to forget who he is. And we're tempted to forget the big picture. And so I think it's critical for us to look at a passage like Romans 8:28 in the context of what it actually promises. And I think what we're going to find, the promises of Romans 8:28 are a whole lot greater than Garth Brooks expressed in his song. The promises of Romans 8:28 are eternal, unshakable, beautiful promises that we don't want to miss. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So here's what I want to do. I want to look first, like we have done each week, why is the usual interpretation, I'm not going to say wrong this week, I'm going to say why is the usual interpretation 
incomplete, right? And then we're going to look at what does the passage mean in its context and how can we apply it to our lives. So why is the usual interpretation incomplete? First reason is, is this, because Romans 8.28 doesn't say that everything is good. It says God works everything for good, right? And that's a critical distinction. Not that everything is good, but that God works everything for good. See, our temptation, anytime there is, is trial, I think we really, we really want to believe that everything will be okay. So we look for the silver lining, don't we? And we often even provide the silver lining. So I was thinking this week, I know many of you, maybe most of you, are going to watch the Super Bowl, uh, which is on this evening. And, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of players and a lot of teams that would love to be there. In fact, there are probably some players and teams who believe they should be there, right? Drew Brees, for example, probably believes he should be there. Now imagine that you happen to have a conversation with him this afternoon. You say, you know, yeah, I know it's disappointing that you lost your playoff game. I know it's disappointing that you feel that a call was not called that cost you the game, and it's a bitter disappointment. But look at it this way. You get to sit with your kids and eat corn dogs. I mean, isn't it great that you lost because now you get extra time with your family? What's he going to say? He might say something like, yeah, 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 you know, but the thing is, I could spend time with my kids on Monday, right? I could spend time with them tomorrow. You're minimizing the very real loss that he's experienced. And I think that's a danger when we read Romans 8, 28, and we say, hey, everything's good. It's all okay, right? And we've all done it or heard it done. Somebody loses a job. Uh, it's okay. God's going to give you a better one. Even in, I've heard it used, somebody loses a, a child or has a miscarriage. and Later has another child and you say, had you not lost that child, you wouldn't have this child. Right? And so, so in trying to find good, we minimize or even ignore the reality that we live in a sinful, broken, fallen world. Death is real. Sin is real. And we yearn and long, and Romans 8 itself will say that all of it. And so Romans 8, 28 says God is working everything for good. We'll talk about more what that means in a few minutes, but I wanted to pause here and say Romans 8, 28 does not say everything is good. And here's one illustration of, of how we see that play out in the Scripture one of the most powerful passages in the book of John, John chapter 11. You remember when Jesus' friend Lazarus died, right? And, and when Lazarus died, in fact, Jesus wasn't there. They had told him Lazarus was sick. Jesus did not go immediately, and Lazarus died. And Jesus actually said, he's like, look, I'm glad I wasn't there. He says this to his disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there because you're going to see God's glory revealed in a way you wouldn't otherwise, right? So there is in this instance a way in which God's going to work where he couldn't otherwise, but you know still what happens when Jesus gets to that tomb. What does he do? He weeps. Jesus wept. Probably the, one of the first passages you memorized and still remember, right? Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Because his friend was dead. Right? I've always found that to be remarkable that Jesus knows, he knows Lazarus is about to, to come back from the dead. He's going to do it, right? He's going to go, hey, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus will stand up and walk out of the tomb. And yet here Jesus stands and, and he grieves. 
Because death has claimed his friend. Because his other friends are sad. He doesn't stand and say, it's okay. You know, it's just, it's just death. It's okay. I can, I can deal with that. He weeps. Romans 8, 28 does not say everything is good. God works everything for good. Secondly, the usual interpretation is incomplete because Romans 8, 28 is only promised to those who know Jesus. It's only promised to those who believe in Jesus. Right? You may remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at 2 Chronicles 7, one of the principles we talked about with promises in the Scripture so we always want to look at who was this promise made to, right? So in 2 Chronicles 7, uh, remember I, I talked about my friend who had offered to his kids 20% interest if they would invest money with his bank right at their house. 20% interest, he would pay them per month. And, and when I asked if I could get the 20% interest, he said no. It was a limited scope promise and a limited time promise, not for me, and only for a short period of time. Remember, because it was driving him bankrupt. And we said, you have to look at these promises and say, who are they made to? In the case of 2 Chronicles 7, we talked about how that promise was made to the nation of Israel. Here in Romans 8, who's the promise made to? What's well, made to those who are in Jesus Christ, those who know Jesus Christ and are called according to his purpose. It's a limited scope promise. All right, and so, so the promise is not, hey, everything all the time for everybody is going to work out Okay. But that's a common belief in our culture. And often I, I have even seen Romans 8.28 utilized in that way. A couple of quotes for you with this perspective. Uh, one comes from John Lennon of the Beatles. Says this, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Right? That's very John Lennon. That just sounds very, very cool without making sense, right? Everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Or Bob Marley. Bob Marley put it, you know, a lot kind of happier. Don't worry about a thing because every little thing going to be all right. right? And he sings that over and over in that song. All right, and the idea is, man, we just know everything's going to work out. It's just going to be okay. Don't worry. Everything will, will play out fine in the end, right? And as I read these quotes, I, I can't help but with a sense of heartache think about the lives of these two men both of whom died young, right? One from a bullet, one from cancer. And the question for those who are not in Jesus Christ is where's the happy ending, right? Because, because Romans eight twenty eight promises all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's, in fact, a huge part of the message of the book of Romans, is that apart from Jesus Christ, we're destined for an eternity of separation from God. But because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, we know that we have eternal life, we know that we have hope, we know that we have a future. And so Romans 8.28 is limited in its scope to those who know Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the usual interpretation is incomplete because Romans 8 offers eternal hope and not quick fixes. That is, the time is broadened, not to now, but to 
eternity. The context of Romans 28 is critical. Now, it may be that it's been a while since you've read the book of Romans. So what I want to do for just a couple of minutes, I've got just maybe 45 seconds. I want to summarize the first eight chapters of the most profound and complex book in the New Testament. All right, so bear with me. Because this is going to help us understand Romans 8.28. You may remember, if you've read Romans before, you know, the first three chapters are really a discussion of how bad everything is, right? Everybody has sinned. You have sinned. I have sinned. That means we violated God's law. We disobeyed Him. And because of that disobedience, Romans 1 through 3 tells us, we're going to die. We're not just going to be laid in a grave, but we are destined for death forever. Eternal separation from God. And then Romans 4 through 5 comes in and says, but because God loved us so much, he gave his son who died in our place. He took our death. We deserve to die. Jesus died for us. Remember Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. And when Jesus died for us and then rose again, now God can declare us, and this is a huge emphasis of Romans 4 and 5, God declares us righteous, justified. That is, all of our debts have been paid, all of our obligations before God have been met in an eternal sense, and so we no longer have to fear hell or death. So then Romans 6 through 8 says, because you have life with God, guess what? The Spirit of God lives in you. And the Spirit of God helps you obey God, helps you reflect the character of Jesus. But there's something else the Spirit of God does in Romans 6 through 8. That is, He constantly reminds you of the promises of God. Romans 6 through 8 tells us, for those who know Jesus Christ, even in the darkest moment, we know that Jesus loves us. Even in the darkest moment, we know what? God is working all things toward a joyful and glorious ending for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Spirit of God living in us cries out that we are His children and we have hope. So that by the time we get to the end of Romans 8, what does Paul say? Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where we are in Romans chapter 8 when he says all things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. It's an eternal promise. Look at verses 29 and 30 of Romans chapter 8, the verses that immediately follow. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. And then he goes on to say, absolutely nothing. Because if you know Jesus Christ, God works all things together for good. The way that I was thinking about Romans 8, 28 this week, um, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen one of these. Maybe, maybe you have, some of you. If you guys wouldn't mind advancing us there. There we go. Okay, so maybe you've given your kids one of these. This is a uh, color by number hidden picture. 
type of drawing. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't want to give it away what it is. Uh, if you can't tell, um, it's, it's a unicorn, okay? So, so here's what you do is, you know, your kids begin to color and, you know, it says one yellow, two orange, three green, and so on. They color each piece. And by the time they get to the end, the idea is they go, oh man, it's a unicorn, right? I couldn't tell, but everything came together, right? So you're, you're coloring this one little section and you don't understand what it is. And then you get to the end and the picture emerges, all right? This is fundamentally what Romans 8, 28 is saying about the way God has arranged the universe. You and I each see a piece, a very small piece, Right? And we long for the day when the whole picture comes together. We say, God, when is death going to die? When will sin be overturned? When will resurrection be a reality? I don't get it. I see my peace. What I see right now is, is a life that is mixed with joy and pain. Love and hate. Heartache, trial, but also moments of peace and happiness. And I don't understand why those two have to be mixed. And I see my peace. And what Romans 8, 28 says is for you, Christian, God is coloring a picture where you're going to get to the end of the story and you're going to go, now I see it. But we don't see it now. We don't get it now. And so Romans 8, 28 is not saying, hey, take your peace and try to make it work out so that it feels balanced. Romans 8, 28 is saying only God sees the picture. And it offers eternal hope and not quick fixes. So the, the typical interpretation of the passage, while not wrong, is incomplete. So what does it mean then? Let's talk for a few minutes about what the passage actually means. And we've hit on some of this this morning, but here's how I would summarize it. For those who know Jesus... We have an unshakable hope that nothing can ruin God's plans for us. Even in the worst of circumstances, God is working for our salvation and toward the renewal of all creation. Romans 8, 28 is saying that in the final analysis, when the final story is written, God will redeem creation. God will save those that he has called. And so in the short run, we trust him. In the short run, we remember his character. In the short run, even when we don't understand, we don't have to always go look for a window. But we trust him. We say, God, I'll be faithful and I will obey and I will trust you know the story. Now, it is true, as I mentioned at the beginning, sometimes, even in the scripture, people are able to see in their lifetime, how God has worked to bring good out of evil. One of the most notable examples in the Old Testament is the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, right? All of them are sons of Jacob, these 12 sons of Jacob. And uh, all of the others get together and they're jealous of Joseph. You remember they sell him into slavery. He goes into slavery and uh, uh, not good things happen to him at least initially, right? So, so he's in slavery to Potiphar, this captain of the Pharaoh's bodyguard. And what happens? He's falsely accused of rape. So he goes to jail and he's in jail for years and years before he finally gets out of jail. And because God was with him, he's ultimately elevated to uh, the right-hand man to the Pharaoh. 
And in that position, he is able to use his position to save the nation of Israel, right? So after all of that happens, after Jacob, their father, dies, the brothers are afraid of Joseph, right? And so they, they, they say, hey, look, we're really, really sorry about that whole throwing you in a well and selling you to the Midianites and all of that. And here's what Joseph says. You'll remember this passage. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Even in the midst of a famine, God used Joseph's position to preserve many people alive. But I will say this. If you went to Joseph and you said, hey, Joseph, did you, would you want to go through all that again? Like if God said, hey, buddy, I've got, you know, like an advanced elective for you, which involves more like spending time at the bottom of pits, going to various prisons, being falsely accused. Like, would you like to do that course? Joseph would say, hmm, that wasn't good stuff. But what happened? God worked it for good, to save his people. But we don't always see that in our lives. What we do know is that God has a purpose for eternity that he is working out for the people of God. Ephesians chapter 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That in Jesus Christ we have an inheritance and we have a hope that cannot be shaken. So that practically speaking, what does the passage mean? First of all, nothing happens outside of God's control. Nothing happens outside of God's control. I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that when bad things happen in our lives, God did them, right? This is my objection to the God shuts a door, opens a window, is I don't think God stands behind doors and goes, you would like that? Nope, I'm shutting that door. That's not what he does. James chapter 1 says that God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. God doesn't do bad things. God does not do evil, right? God does not author sin. He doesn't make evil happen. But what does Romans eight twenty eight say? Nothing's outside of his control. Think about for a minute, what, what is probably one of the worst things that ever could have happened on earth? Well, the crucifixion, right? A group of people got together and decided that they were going to murder the Messiah, the Son of God. But it's interesting in Acts chapter 2, looking at that event, here's what Peter said. Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. What is Peter saying? You guys did this, but God was never out of control. You guys did this, but God's hand was never off the wheel. He knew what would happen, and he had a plan for it from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time. God is not caught off guard. Nothing happens outside of God's control, right? If you're a parent, you know that things happen outside of your control every day, many times a day, right? So your kids come and they say, may I do a craft? And maybe you're not paying attention to all of the possible implications of that question. So you say yes, right? 
And then you come into the kitchen and you find out the craft involved large amounts of glitter and glue and confetti and Play-Doh. Right? Some of you, your kids are grown and you're still cleaning up glitter and Play-Doh from the crevices of your home. And you're caught off guard. They say, may I have a snack? And you say, sure. And they eat all the food, right? And you go, I, I said a snack, not all the snacks, right? And you're what? You're caught off guard. You can't control what's going to happen. Your life every day moves in directions you don't anticipate. That doesn't happen to God, right? When, when we see, even in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, you don't see God's surprise. It's not like, oh my goodness, I told you guys, I told you, I told you. Don't do that. I can't believe it. Right? No, he says, that. no, I told you not to do that. But he's firmly in control. God is never surprised. God is never caught off guard. Nothing happens outside of God's control. Secondly, God is conforming us to the image of Christ. Verse 29, which we read just a moment ago. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That what's happening is, is God doesn't cause sin. God doesn't cause evil. But God in his power is able to use all that happens, all things, to conform us to the image of Jesus. So that as we move throughout the New Testament, it's interesting, trial and suffering are often likened to training, like an athlete's training, right? Where an athlete will endure pain and suffering and hardship to strengthen his or her muscles to get ready for that moment when it's needed for them to compete, Right, so if you watch the Olympics like I do, I love the Summer Olympics every four years. Right? But if I'm honest, in between those four years, I don't watch a whole bunch of women's gymnastics. I don't watch a whole bunch of hurdling or things like that. Right? Most of us don't. So think about that. We're not watching. Most of us are not watching these sports for years. And yet in, in obscurity, what's going on? These athletes are training in obscurity. Hard work and pain, and sacrifice, and suffering. Why? Because they're strengthening their muscles. They're strengthening their endurance for that moment when they will do that race, right? And if you're a sprinter, that race might be nine seconds that you waited for for four years. And I'm guessing most of them, if you said, you know, if you could have the nine seconds without the four years of trial and pain, would you take it? Absolutely. But that's not a deal that's offered to them, is it? And so what we see in the Scripture is that part of what God does is even out of suffering, He teaches us to endure, to conform to the character of Christ. Because that's what we're made to do. So God is conforming us to Christ's image. Thirdly, and lastly, the end of our story is good. Romans 8, 28 tells us the end of the story is good. We're not going to get to the end and go, oh man, that was kind of a disappointing ending. All right, a few years ago, uh, my wife, Shannon, was watching a movie, uh, and she had to watch it over several nights in the evenings because it was after the kids went to bed, and it was kind of a long movie, three or four hours, and she got very invested in the characters as she watched this movie, and it was kind of, it was a love story where, you know, there's this guy, and I don't remember all the details, but like, you know, he gets separated from his true love, and he spends like 
you know, like years trying to get back to her. Like that's the whole essence of the movie. And so I came in one evening from a meeting or something right toward the end of this film and uh, walked through the room a couple of times. And I finally came in as the credits were rolling and she was just staring at the TV like in horror and shock. And I said, well, what's wrong? She goes, they killed him in the last two minutes. Like I was invested, like the love story was going somewhere. And then like somebody shot him in the last two minutes. It's like, I hate this stupid movie. She turns it off. Why? Because she felt tricked, right? She felt she was promised a happy ending. And she didn't get it. That's not what's going to happen in God's plan. There will be no tricks. But what God promises, God delivers. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5. Go read it sometime and and read the end of the story. No more pain, no more death, no more tears. You see, in Revelation 21, we don't even need the, the sun or the moon because the glory of God shines so brightly. And we live in his presence forever. So the Romans 8.28 says what? God is working all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Man, I think that's much more joyful and hopeful and powerful than saying, yeah, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers, right? But instead we say, now I have an unshakable That in Jesus Christ, we have a future that cannot be shaken. So how do we respond then this morning as we close? First of all, trust in Jesus. Again, that the scope of this passage is for those who know Jesus Christ. If you're in the room this morning and you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, uh, here's the message of the whole book of Romans and especially chapter 8, but the whole book of Romans is the only way to know that you have that hope and that future is if you have recognized that you are a sinner in need of the mercy of God. And then the scripture, it, it throws the doors of God's grace wide open and it says all who will trust in Jesus will have eternal life and a hope and a future. So all you gotta do is you say, God, I trust you for eternal life because of what you did in Jesus, that Jesus died for me and rose again. So you trust in Jesus Christ. Secondly, and this is important, don't be ashamed to grieve. Don't be ashamed to grieve. And don't be afraid to allow others to grieve the brokenness and the sin and the evil of the world. See, I think often what we, what we are so tempted to do it might be we use Romans 8, 28 this way. It might be we just, we, we so much want to help when people are sad that we just, we throw out things like, hey, it's going to be okay. God works all things together. Don't be sad. It's okay. It's okay. You're going to be okay. And that person says, but I, I don't, I'm not okay. The world is, is, is sad and it hurts at times. And we need to acknowledge that. And I think sometimes we need to even acknowledge that for ourselves in our lives. And here's why. Here's why. Because I think as long as we are in pain and we say, no, but I'm fine. I'm fine. It's okay. I'm going to be okay tomorrow. I'm going to be okay the next day. Maybe God will work this out. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm not hurting. As long as we stay in that space, I don't think we ever move to hope. And the reason is because if we can't acknowledge the pain, 
then our, then our only hope is to try to keep making our peace work out instead of saying, Jesus, you are my only hope. What you've promised in the Scripture is my hope. And so don't be ashamed or afraid of grief. Just as Jesus wept, we can weep. Thirdly, trust the character of God. Even when the ending of the story seems far away, We don't know what's going on. We remember a God who loves us and in his grace and mercy provided eternal life and a future. We trust the character of God. And then lastly, we remember the good news. We go back and we read the story again. And we remember all that God has done to provide life and hope and a future. And we remember, hey, the good news is Jesus died for sin. He rose again. He defeated death. He defeated hell. And the day is coming when all the promises of God will be fulfilled. And so I remind myself of the good news over and over, 10 times a day. We're going to celebrate communion as we close. And as we celebrate communion and as the men come forward The thing I want to say is communion is an excellent opportunity for us to remember the good news. As Jesus was about to die and he celebrated and and he celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples for the first time, right? One one of the things he told them was, look, you need to do this in remembrance of me. And he he said, I'm not going to eat this bread or drink this cup with you again until I come back, right? That that there's going to be a day when I'm going to come back. And in that day, we will feast again together, right? So every time we celebrate communion, here's what we're doing is we're recognizing what Jesus did to fix, to redeem the fallenness and sin of the world. And then we're looking ahead to the end of the story and we're saying, hey, he's going to come back. And when he comes back, we're going to gather together and there will be a feast that will never end where there will be no sin or sadness or sickness or death. And so we rejoice. So as the men come forward, then let's take a moment just at your seat to reflect upon the good news and praise God for all he did to redeem us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that because of Jesus, we have hope and a future that cannot be shaken. We are grateful for all you provide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.